what does it mean to regenerate? The reemergence of the concept of regeneration in our culture is a hot topic. From producers to products, legislation to certifications, celebrities to students, there's no shortage of passionate perspectives. Welcome to Regen Circle. I'm Paige Fay, and on this show, we're here to explore the reemergence of regenerative concepts and practices and their impact on ecosystems and culture. If you like what you hear, take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Welcome to the circle. beautiful humans. I'm Paige Fay with Regen Circle, and on the show today we have an individual who has walked the bridge from human health to ecological health, from immune system resiliency to ecosystem resiliency, from microbiome diversity to divert biodiversity. I am so excited to welcome mentor, legend, and friend Dr. Jeffrey Bland on the show today. If you're familiar with Dr. Bland's work, you likely know him as the father of functional medicine. He founded the Institute for Functional Medicine in 1991, and in the last 35 years has taught more than 100,000 healthcare practitioners in over 50 countries. Today, we're gonna to be focusing on his most recent scientific work on the link between human and ecological health, and that works manifestation in his most recent project, Big Bold Health. Jeff, welcome to Regen Circle. Paige, what a treat. I can tell you that uh, your juxtaposition of those various spanning words really outlines a domain that, first of all, is, is very ambitious, but second of all, really defines, I think, some of the opportunities slash challenges that we as human species have on the planet today. So I couldn't think of a more fitting topic to, uh, to jump into. Well, I'm excited to dive in and into your wealth of knowledge around science. And so my first question for you is, could you give us a couple of examples backed by science that you've seen about the link between human health and ecological health? Yes, I think it's really interesting uh, to note that when we think about ecological health, that it fulfills certain criteria that are very similar to the way we would define human health. Um, and just to quickly remind people about human health, we often think of the fact that if we can maintain our homeostasis, uh, that we would be in a good state of health. Now, what does homeostasis mean? It, it means in, uh, in kind of simplified language, it means that our biology finds a, an appropriate balance that tends to resist changes that occur as a consequence of outside factors. Those could be chemicals, it could be energy, it could be stress, it could be toxins. Um, all of those are outside signals that our body's exposed to that it then has to respond to it. And homeostasis is the ability to manage those stresses and maintain a balanced function. So if you think of the planet, are there similar things going on? We don't think of the planet as having a heart or lungs or brain, but it has similar processes that regulate its ability to respond to change. Those happen to be what we call the cycles, uh, things like the carbon cycle, the hydrological cycle, the nitrogen cycle, sulfur cycle, and so forth. These are, are processes that really represent the physiology of the planet and its health uh, assessment. So if we had a, a scorecard for the health of the planet, it would be like it is in humans to assess homeostasis like blood sugar and blood oxygen. For the planet, we would be looking at the health of those, those cycles. And what has been found over the last, uh, particularly the last 20 or 30 years is as planetary science has started to evolve and, and showing its convergence with, um, with human health science, 
is if many of the uh, things that we would we would have measured as being physical aspects of the environment, it could even be things like climate, mean average climactic conditions, mean average rainfall, uh, mean average humidity, days of sunlight, all of those things are signs uh, as it relates to the uh, status of the homeostatic status of the planet. And what we now recognize is that human activities for the first time really have been quantified as having impact upon those biological indicators of, uh, of what I guess you call it balance in the physical environment, just as they are also affecting the human environment and the human health parameters. So as our blood sugar changes, uh, then what we find is that blood sugar changes is in consequence of, say, eating diets that are higher in uh, blood sugar raising elements. These are particularly highly refined carbohydrates and sugars. And then we say, well, where do those come from? Uh, those come from plants that are very well uh, selected to produce high, high levels of sugars and, and carbohydrates. So that could be corn or it could be sugar beet or it could be sugar cane. And what impact do they have on their local environment when you are then uh, growing tens of thousands of acres of them? We have then the indication on their local environment that the carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen cycles of those environments are changed, just as the health of the people who consume the final products for those crops uh, from those use of the land in that way agriculturally uh, are adversely affected with their with regard to their blood sugar homeostasis. So I think that we're starting to see this, this network thinking emerge, uh, which puts together different branches of science, planetary science, physical sciences with biological sciences and recognizing that we're all interconnected. Uh, it's all the, the story of the hummingbird's wing uh, flaps in China and has an opportunity to change the weather in North America. And, and those types of interrelationships are, are really uh, starting to be recognized at a scientific level. There's so many places that I could go with that, but just to, to break it down, the first place I'd like to go to is I remember when we had the opportunity to work together, you know, you were talking about, hey, there's, you know, we've looked, we've had this nutrition facts panel around food for a number of times, and there's calories and carbohydrates and sugars and fats, and then there's maybe some labels about if it was farmed regeneratively or if there's the absence of certain, or if it was farmed organically and if there's the absence of certain chemicals or, or different elements. What are some of the markers that you're starting to look at in food that impart human nutrition on a deeper level? Like if there were three things you could look at within a food product, what would you start looking at beyond the basics of what we've been taught? Oh, that's a fantastic question. It's really insightful. And actually, the things I'm going to say uh, are not yet fully encoded in the, the labeling process for today. So in part, they may represent things that we would want to look at as we move forward. So let's let's talk about what they would be. Um, one of the interesting things that people have considered for years to be a throwaway part of, of food products, particularly obviously vegetable products, are the non-digestible carbohydrates. Now, what do I mean by non-digestible carbohydrates? These are forms of carbohydrate that human nutrition, human physiology doesn't break them down and, and use them as sources of energy like it would starch. Um, and so we then have given them a special name. We call them fiber. And these are uh, these are molecules that plants make uh, where they put together the same kind of uh, 
building block that we use in our body to make energy, which is glucose, but they put them together in a different way in the plant that makes it inaccessible to the human to eat and to, I mean, excuse me, not to eat, to, to utilize metabolically. And so these non-digestible carbohydrate, which we call fiber, can exist in, in a variety of different forms, but we generally put them into two different forms. One is we call soluble, and the others are called insoluble. Now, why are those different? Because soluble are, if you take those types of non-digestible carbohydrates and you put them in water, they tend to dissolve in the solution. So they, they are soluble. Whereas um, if you took sawdust from wood waste, that would be a, a non-digestible carbohydrate and you put it in, in water and it doesn't dissolve. So it's non-soluble. Uh, non the difference between those two types of carbohydrate like uh, let's say oat fiber or wheat fiber or corn fiber and that of uh, say Jerusalem artichoke fiber is very different in the way that organisms that live within our intestinal tract can utilize them. Okay. So the non-digestible uh, carbohydrate from the <clears throat> soluble fiber is broken down into metabolic energy by a different family of organisms that live in our intestinal tract, the so-called microbiome, than is the other form of, um, of non-digestible carbohydrate, which would be the insoluble form. So you can have specialized food for your bacteria based upon what forms of fiber you're going to be consuming in your diet. Now, that's a lot of um, Jeff speak that I've just thrown out there, a lot of technical mumbo jumbo, but that information, which is now in increasingly being seen as important, as it relates to our human nutrition, because those bugs that live in our intestinal tract, how they live and how they do their work is very important as to how our immune system works, mm -hmm. um, is not really incorporated very uh, completely into food labels. Now mm -hmm. they did add uh, with the last uh, iterations of change in the in the food labeling laws, they did include fiber as a gross um, measurement. So we, we can get some il illustration of on a per serving basis, how many grams of fiber, but that doesn't break it down into the subtypes of fiber that have, may have different effects upon your, your body. Now, I think fiber in and of itself is an important thing to know because just in a, as a general consideration, we as human beings consuming the standard American type diet, some people abbreviate that the SAD um, or the, the SAD, uh, that particular diet provide somewhere around 10 grams of total fibers per day. And if you look at the cultures that historically have, say, had no appendicitis, have had no serious digestive diseases, their diet, because it's highly unrefined and a lot of plant-based foods, uh, has 50 to 60 grams of fiber a day, so five to six times as much. And years ago, I had the privilege of sharing for three nights a room at a medical meeting with Dennis Burkett. Dennis Burkett was a, a medical doctor from uh, trained in Britain, uh, very well known in gastroenterology, who spent much, most of his adult years uh, in, in Africa working with uh, African tribes on nutrition-related issues. And he was um, the person who discovered, for instance, what's called Burkett lymphoma, which is a, a form of cancer. Uh, but he also is notable for having been the first person to actually go around and measure stools of 
uh, free-ranging African uh, natives. And finding, and actually, uh, I spent a whole evening with him showing me photographs that he'd taken out on the bush of, uh, because there weren't a lot of uh, portable toilets out there. He was taking uh, photographs of the stools of these African bush people and, and comparing it to the stool photographs he'd taken of their Western British um, immigrant visitors. And you could immediately see physically there's a tremendous difference in bulk, but also in form and function. And his point was uh, way back when, now this would be in the late 60s, early 70s, when he made these observations, that the digestive disorders that most um, uh, abdominal surgeons were making their living off of were conditions that were unseen in, in Africa and that they're entirely preventable by increasing the fiber content of the diet. So he was the early kind of fiber lord, and I had the privilege of spending three nights learning about African uh, stools and, and fiber. Since then, we've come a long way recognizing the importance that um, these different forms of fiber, both the insoluble and soluble, have and how they influence different aspects like blood sugar, obesity, you know, arthritis, inflammation. Um, and so that would be something on our food labels that I think over time we're going to see much more call out. Secondly, uh, another thing that hasn't really received the kinds of attention that it deserves on labels is the level of different types of phytochemicals that are found in plant foods. And I think the reason for that is that historically, uh, it was considered by most nutritionists that these compounds that are found in plants, the things that give plants their color, uh, and so that's why it's so important for us to eat by the eat by the rainbow because different colored foods bring different members of this class of nutrients that we call phytochemicals into our diet. But it was not they were not considered to be essential nutrients by nutritionists. They're not like vitamin C or the B vitamins where you're going to prevent a specific deficiency disorder like scurvy or beriberi pellagra. Uh, what has been found, however, is that they play principal roles in helping to signal to our genes how it's going to utilize uh, nutrition in support of our metabolism. So they're like orchestrators of metabolism. And they do not get called out on food uh, labels at all. You could eat a food that was very rich in them, and you wouldn't know it unless you were kind of a student of that food. Or you could eat a food that maybe was rich in them when it was grown on the ground, but by the time it got into that package, and went through all sorts of processing, it was virtually totally removed and, hmm. and would be hardly any at all. So this, this concept of phytochemical levels in food is another really important uh, missing bit of information. Now, there's a family of, of these uh, phytochemicals that have received a lot of attention recently called flavonoids or polyphenols. That's the name that's been given to them. And you'll find these in, in virtually every fruit and vegetable or vegetable product. They appear... They also appear in things like tea and coffee. And um, the different, oh, by the way, there, there are over 10,000 different varieties of these compounds. So they're very, very uh, rich in number. And each one of those has a, has a unique biological activity. So these are bioactive nutrients mm -hmm. for which you, as a, a label reader, wouldn't know whether they're in your food and if they were at what level. So the, the construct that I think we're witnessing as people become more and more interested in, in the, the health benefits of food 
is here are things that really play big and big roles to improve your biology that we need to know more about a food product that we're, we're buying and eating as to whether it's in there uh, as it was in maybe the natural state before it got highly processed and put into the final product. By the way, there's something interesting about those uh, those phytochemicals that I think is deserving of comment, content, uh, comment as well. And that is that each plant food um, has a different array of these in interesting types of phytochemicals. So let's use an example. Let's talk about the cruciferous vegetable family. Mm -hmm. So what vegetables are in that family? We have cabbage, cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels sprouts. Most people know those as kind of stinky foods. Uh, because they have the sulfur-containing phytochemicals. Uh, uh, glucosinolates is what they're called. Well, it turns out when you eat a food that's rich in those phytochemicals, uh, they get broken down in your digestive process into a secondary set of uh, chemicals, things like uh, sulfurophane and indole-3-carbonyl. Those particular uh, materials, when found in, in, your, in your body, have very powerful effects on your uh, body's ability to detoxify and to get rid of uh, foreign chemicals and to convert them into non-toxic derivatives that can be excreted out of your body. So we're, we're, we're starting to witness that, uh, gee, uh, if you didn't eat a diet that had any of these compounds in them, uh, you may be having a compromise of your ability to get rid of polynuclear emetic hydrocarbons or various types of uh, persistent organic pollutants that build up in your body and, and may be dangerous or not even uh, be able to metabolize various drugs uh, effectively so that they have a, a more toxic effect on your body. So we're we're starting to witness that these these foods, these these um, nutrients in specific foods, have really important physiological function in improving our health. But again, they're not called out on food labels at this point. So that would be my second cat example. My third example, because uh, you gave me the challenge to come up with three here, so. My, my third would be, uh, uh, if you look at the protein um, designation on food, um, protein is a very important part of our diet, no question about it. Uh, but protein can exist in many different forms. Uh, and what we know that uh, vegetable protein and animal proteins generally have different uh, structures and, and different functions. And so one might ask the question, is there a way to uh, understand whether dietary protein from reading a food label is more or less helpful for your body in restoring, say, your muscle mass or to improving your blood sugar levels or providing uh, amino acids that are useful for stabilizing your mood hormones like uh, serotonin and, and adrenaline. And the answer to that question is, well, different food proteins have differing levels of the of their building blocks and their building blocks are called amino acids and there are about 20 members of the amino acid family that make like pop beads on a chain that when put together make up a protein and it turns out that of those 20 about eight of them cannot be made from one another uh, those are called essential amino acids meaning they have to be eaten in the form that your body needs them and if not, then you are not going to get enough of that specific amino acid. And your body is only as efficient as the limiting of the essential amino acid that's present in your diet. That's oh. an interesting concept. So you could eat a lot of protein, but if it was proteins that was deficient in one of the essential amino acids, 
you still may be having protein problems and you might not mm -hmm. understand why. You would say, gee, well, I'm eating all sorts of protein like collagen protein, but I seem to be uh, like losing muscle. Well, that's because you're missing one of these or more of these essential amino acids. And if you look at food labels, they don't call out essential amino acids. They just give grams of protein. So you're not sure, are you getting levels that are adequate of lysine or tryptophan or leucine? Uh, these are members of the essential or cysteine, members of the uh, essential amino acid family. So those would be some examples of places where labels are not giving you the full scoop of what you might want to know. Mm, super helpful and insightful. And so looking at different forms of, of fiber, soluble and insoluble, looking at phytochemical levels, looking at all the essential amino acids and proteins. I know that you've done some studies around a specific food that I got to work with you on a little bit um, called Himalayan tartary buckwheat, which name, which whose name we had many debates over because um, it doesn't necessarily describe what the product is in any way or our perception of what the product should be off of the name. And, you know, you guys have started to do scientific studies um, looking at the soil health and how you're growing this ingredient. And I'd love, I know you could probably spend an hour just on this ingredient, but I'd love you to tell us what Himalayan tartary buckwheat is and why, and why it's so um, important to our understanding of human nutrition in relation to planetary nutrition. Yeah, thank you. I, this has been a very interesting chapter in my life. Um, I won't belabor these, the discovery for me, but uh, it turns out that this is a 4,000-year-old food. Excuse me, one of, the, one of the longest cultivated foods in human nutrition. And as the name implies, it came from the, uh, the foothills of the Himalayan mountains. And it turns out it exists, in, uh, as we've come to learn, in three different forms or varieties. Uh, a southern Himalayan form, a um, northern Himalayan form, and a form that's called wild Himalayan tartary buckwheat. And the, each of these seeds are slightly different in, in the way they look and in the, their genes um, give rise to a slightly different outcome and product. The um, unique feature of this plant is because it's evolved over millions of years in a very hostile environment, it's had to develop its defense mechanisms very well uh, to survive, and so it, oh, I don't know what I ran into here. Uh, it has to, um, it doesn't have to, but it has developed the ability to have an immune system that's extraordinarily active against hostile environments. So it- And just to has, pause right there, because the idea of a plant having an immune system might be sort of out there for people. So can you just break that down really quickly? Of, yeah, of yeah. This is part of my learning. So the last few years that uh, plants don't have a blood system like we do, but they do have a very, very adept immune system that's uh, structured in a slightly different way than our blood system does for our immunity. But it defends the plant against the things that it's worried about, like uh, mold and insects and certain plant diseases. And it does so through the development of these antibacterial compounds that and immune activated compounds that are these phytochemicals that are unique to the plant. And it turns out that's the plant's part of the plant's immune system. It's a it's so-called innate immune system. And what we have found, uh, well, not just we, many other investigators have worked on this as well, is that the level of these immune active nutrients found in tartary buckwheat, by the way, tartary refers to the region in China where this was discovered, the Tartan region of China. 
which is up against the Himalaya mountains. And uh, it turns out that the plant, due to its unique genetic inheritance, makes 50 to 100 times the level of immune active phytochemicals of any other plant food that is known. It's like a super immune strengthened uh, little biochemical factory. And we are really kind of interested in that, particularly in this age where we're going through so many immune challenges, because it turns out this is an example kind of of coevolution. As that plant has evolved its immune defense and then it is uh, consumed by humans, those immune active properties then are transferred over and have been found to actively participate in the enhanced activity of our innate and adaptive immune system in humans. And to make the story even more interesting, as you have already alluded to, the thing that stimulates the tartary buckwheat seed to germinate into a plant with those phytochemicals is the relationship that seed has as it's germinating with the soil microbiome. The soil has its own microbiome. And when the microbiome on the soil is in an immune active, healthy state, the so-called mycorrhiza is what it's termed, those fungi and bacteria that live in this community uh, in the soil, in a healthy soil, are then sending signals to the seed as it's germinating that then communicates to the seed to produce more of these phytochemicals, which then when it's consumed by the human, gives them an immune active outcome. And it turns out, I just uh, was uh, in, in discussion uh, recently with Dan Butner, who is the author of uh, uh, Blue Zones. And we were talking a little bit about what he had observed in these Blue Zones, the regions around the country where people are commonly live uh, to be 100 years of age and have very high levels of vitality and health. And he was commenting that these people always seem to eat diets. They're very rich in these colored foods, these plant-based foods, and so I was talking to him about the phytochemicals, and, and he was saying, well, this might provide a, a biological mechanism then as to why you see these cultures, the Vincan Bama, the Costa Ricans, the uh, Filipinos, uh, Himalayans, why they have this very adapt immune, adaptive immune systems. They don't have a lot of medicine. They don't have antibiotics, yet they've lived very, very healthily uh, into their late years, late decades, century living. Uh, and that this may explain this interrelationship between the ecology of their environment, uh, the presence of uni these unique foods, their consumption and their lifestyle habits, which are probably the best way for uh, healthy aging to be, uh, to be promoted. Wow. So there's a few threads that I want to pull on there. I, th I think one thing that I'd love to hear you summarize is for people like, how could a plant's immunity impart resiliency or even degeneration in our own immune system. How does that work? Yes, I, so there is another very interesting uh, example of, of biology and, and why science sometimes is, is important to know. Because it turns out that uh, just within the last few decades, maybe particularly the last two decades, some of these fundamental biological mechanisms of aging are being discovered. And when uh, Scientists across different disciplines have been discovering these various processes, things like autophagy, uh, mitochondrial degeneration, the energy powerhouse of cells, things related to breaks in DNA, various mechanisms that are associated uh, with aging across 
everything from worms up through humans, they also find that these processes are found in plants as well. And if we think of plants, we have two uh, kinds of plants. We have perennials and we have annuals. Now, if you're a perennial, um, like you're a sequoia tree, think of uh, biological aging in a sequoia tree. If you're going to be around for a thousand years uh, and you're going to be exposed to all sorts of different environmental conditions, you better have a different kind of set of defensive substances than a plant that's only going to last for one season. And um, so you start saying, well, what do I know about pine trees? And what do I know about plants that have long histories that are perennials? And you'll find that their sap smells different. It, uh, it has a different viscosity, different thickness. And those are all principles of its own unique personality that give rise to the carrying uh, from uh, all the way from the roots up to the leaves of their different immune uh, uh, potentiating uh, substances. So you know that the uh, the pine tree, for instance, it has these uh, what are called monoterpenes that you can smell like pinene, that uh, camphor, things that are known to be agents that uh, uh, support the processes to prevent these biological mechanisms of aging. So I, I think there's a unifying concept that's coming about that these principles that that lead to the degradation of cells, to, to degradation of tissues of organs, organ systems, and, organ, and whole organisms are unified throughout the plant and animal kingdom. And there are things that we can do by harnessing that knowledge to actually slow aging and to, uh, to, to lead to healthier long-term outcomes. So another thing that you sparked for me when you were talking about that was you had mentioned that the plants have evolved to build resiliency against certain fungi or, you know, different things that could be trying to harm them, consume them, kill them within their environment, and that that builds resiliency. What do you think the effect of, you know, in our modern agricultural system, we spray pesticides, we spray herbicides to, to kill a lot of um, these potential predators of the different plants? And even, you know, farmers that are looking to farm regeneratively still talk about um, how difficult it is to farm without that. What are those chemicals, not even what are they doing to our human health, but what are they doing to the health of the plant? How are they changing the biology of the plant itself? Well, that's a really important point. And I think I may have led to a false uh, conclusion. I want to clarify so I don't leave a false impression. So these organisms that are in soils are not necessarily dangerous to the plant itself. Um, for instance, we know that there are certain members of the mycorrhizal family, the soil fungi, that produce specific chemicals as a result of their own metabolism, chemicals that are a member of the shikimic acid pathway, the gemonic acid pathway. These are a family of chemicals that are actually stimulants to the seed germinating in that soil to do its job correctly. They, they're actually gene expression modulators. So it's harmonious relationship. It's a hand-holding relationship of friendly architecture, not necessarily of toxic architecture. So uh, the, the difficulty we have, let, let's use an example of a human condition uh, to try to illustrate this. Um, so there are a variety of organisms that live in our intestinal tract that if they're not properly controlled can kill us. Um, 
Campylobacter jejuni uh, or um, Campylobacter difficile are examples of organisms that live in our intestinal microbiome that if they are not in the right balance and the right community, meaning having other organisms in their social environment, they can go wild and they can actually produce such an infection that it can kill a person. And uh, C. difficile, Clostridial, Clostridium difficile infection is one of a major cause of hospital-based death because this is an antibiotic-resistant organism that often lives in, in hospitals, even though they are very hygienic. And if a person has a compromised immune system, then that organism that would normally not produce any kind of problem if you had a healthy immune system now becomes a dangerous bug because there's nobody there to check it and it goes wild. So similarly with uh, another organism that's in our intestinal tract, uh, you know, whole di different members of this family called E. coli. Uh, e. coli are generally not considered to be dangerous, but if you have a compromised immune system, like HIV AIDS would be an example, then um, that organism that's normally okay now can become life-threatening. It can go out of control. So it's, it's, it's balance that's really important in ecology. And, and our body is only part of an ecological system. So if you go to soil, again, it's the community that is in balance. It's complex. Now, what happens when you start taking that natural Amazonian rainforest like microbiorhiza in, in soil, and you now you cut all the trees down and all the plants down, and now you want to maybe have just some crop grow up that animals can eat if you're raising cattle. Now you're sterilizing the soil to do that. You're changing the architecture of the communities. You're making some organisms in the soil predominant, others going away. And now it's it's less stable. It's less resilient. It's, it's less healthy. Um, and what happens then is now you have all sorts of uh, problems that arise, not only with the animals that live on that plants that lived on that soil, but on the soil itself. With increasing uh, risk, you can start having plant pathogens, and you can have so mold, and you can have things that you never had to worry about when you had a, a very complex mycorrhizal environment because it was all checks and balances. It's just like the patient in the hospital who has now got a compromised immune system and C. diff now starts to take over and can be uh, a lethal event. You can have that same thing in agriculture. So the use of a lot of soil sterilizing chemicals produces more need for soil sterilizing chemicals. It's a, it's a circle of doom in some respects because over time you continue to increase dependency by lowering nature's diversity that is stability. And there's one thing that we learn in ecology that goes is true for ecology in a cornfield or a rainforest or in your human intestinal tract, and that is diversity equals stability. Uh, simplicity equals instability. So if you think of a cornfield for tens of thousands of acres, in order to grow one crop on it and have that the only crop, <laughs> you've got to use a tremendous number of things to keep everything out of the way, herbicides, pesticides, and so forth. And now you completely change the stability of the system 
and make it dependent upon that types of, of um, I, I guess you'd really call it pharmacological intervention to grow one outcome, which then produces instability and now you've got all sorts of downstream problems and you need a hospital-based agricultural system. Hmm. Diversity, I love that point about diversity and, and I'm curious. <laughs> Excuse me. I uh, got exposed in the North Atlantic to 20 foot seas and uh, 35 knot winds for two days. So I'm recovering from uh, a wonderful episode going out to Iceland. So, <laughs> wow. Jeff, it, it, it amazes me how many adventures you still go on. It's really, it's truly impressive and a sign of, of great resiliency. So, well, thank you. Um, I, it's such a good point that you make about that and, you know, sort of the necessity of our modern agricultural system to feed this many people. We've often reduced the amount of diversity and therefore resiliency across a lot of our farms. And I'd love to know what you're learning about your farm in upstate New York, where you are growing Himalayan tartary buckwheat and what you're testing with mycorrhizal fungi and what you're learning um, in that process. Yeah, this was a really exciting uh, learning curve for me and, and my colleagues, uh, Paige, and you were involved in the early start of this. And we uh, we hired a soil scientist, Emily Reese, a really sharp individual who considers herself a so soil steward. She did her work at uh, her PhD at Cornell University in the uh, in the ag uh, department, and so she uh, worked with our farmers, particularly our lead farmer, uh, Thor to uh, put up a field trial in which we uh, had for they cordoned off a section of our uh, land that we grow our tarby buckwheat on. This is all organic certified land for the last oh, 20 or so years. And um, they then had uh, inoculated uh, the seeds and the soil with different types of uh, fungi and bacteria that had been found to be useful uh, to enrich uh, soil diversity. And and um, we were wondering whether that ultimately, if there would be some combination of these bugs, these organisms, that could have an influence on the production from the seed of these immune active phytochemicals. And you never know you're doing that type of a study. It's in nature. You're it's not like in the laboratory or the greenhouse. We're out in, in the real world. But when at the end of the season, it was last season when we. Uh, uh, did this study, and then we had to harvest, obviously, and then mill, uh, and then chemically analyze the results. But we were extraordinarily excited to see that there was a combination out of the different recipes that we tried in, in the field. There was a unique combination that enhanced the level of the phytochemicals in the final seed, and actually in the flower when we milled it, uh, as a consequence of the community that the, saw, that the seed felt when it was germinating, from those specific organisms that we inoculate the soil with. So this year, needless to say, we are inoculating all of our fields uh, as we go into planting next week with uh, this uh, combination of friendly bugs to enhance the mycorrhizal diversity and health of the soil. And by the way, I wanna emphasize that these are, these are farms where soil stewardship is really at the high, this is not like taking a depleted, uh, plot of land, these farmers uh, have great reverence for their for their land and have been growing uh, organically for more than 20 years. Right. Well, I'm so excited to, to try the product. And I, I think going back to my first question, one of the questions I have for you is as you're 
doing all of this really intense work to to grow a crop and then create a product that is as not only nutrient rich but also imparting sort of maximum health and resiliency for humans um, and truly a, a functional food um, that's, that's functional medicine. Um, how are you communicating this to people in a world where, you know, we've got, you know, a little small label on the back and, and people's literacy around a lot of this is fairly low. I know that I got to work with you a bit on this, but I'm curious, you know, as people are taking more control of their health, as people are learning more about things, how are you, how are you translating all of this work you're doing um, to the consumer? Yes. So I think there's, I've, this is a, a, what I'm going to say is my learning is going to sound like, uh, well, gee, that's a duh. Uh, you should have known that before you did anything. But, you know, we're all on our paths of enlightenment. Different people get enlightened at different places in their life. So what I, uh, what I have been enlightened to understand is that stories that you can replicate with mechanistic understanding from, from science are really the most compelling ways of getting people's attention. So... We have fortunately now having had this uh, Himalayan tardy buckwheat product out in the marketplace for now the second growing season, uh, we were amassing a variety of personal testimonies, anecdotes, and, and stories. One happened to be from my uh, wife's and my own master gardener, a woman who is uh, a professional and tends the uh, uh, flowers and, and, and uh, plant products from a variety of, of people in our area. And so she, uh, one day when I was out there, this was uh, last last spring, a year ago, uh, I noticed that she was wearing gloves and and uh, was taking her gloves off and it looked like she was making an expression like you know, her, her hands were in pain. So I walked over and I was speaking with her and I said, so Patty, uh, you know, have you injured your hands? And now she is, you know, no toxic stuff. She completely uses organic gardening uh, methods. And she said that uh, she had developed over the years uh, a greater and greater sensitivity to certain plants and that she was getting this, this dermatitis. It had gotten so bad that she was wearing gloves and trying to put uh, dermatologists and using different things. But uh, she was afraid that maybe she's going to have to retire because it was just gotten so bad that she couldn't seem to keep it under control. It was very painful. And, her skin was cracking and very red. And and um, so I, I asked her, I said, so have you tried our Himalayan tartary buckwheat? And, and she said, well, no, yeah, I don't know anything about that. So then we had a conversation. And then uh, I gave her, obviously gave her some to, to try. And then over a, a period of a few months, um, it, would, it was actually in the middle of the summer, uh, I, I came and I said, oh, no, she saw me. That's how it was. Yeah, I, I'd come into the driveway. She saw me and she, she kind of yelled exuberantly, came running over, and she said, oh, my word, I've, I've been wanting to see you. I wanted to show you my hands. And um, she was still wearing gloves. She took the gloves off. Her hands were perfectly pink. All the, the lesions she had had were completely healed. The first time she said in five years that she has not had pain in her hands. And so now we're starting to, um, uh, to um, uh, catalog a whole series of those types of experiences that people have had. Uh, not always so graphic as the skin, but things like sleep, sling, things like mood, things like energy, things like uh, painful joints, things like digestive uh, dysfunction, all of which are immune-related symptoms that maybe that person didn't realize they were immune-related, 
that have, as they had gotten into a use of the Himalayan tartary buckwheat uh, phytochemicals, have had significant improvement. So that's how we're really focusing now on what I would call the felt state of individuals. And then we, from, if they're interested, then we could give them the mechanistic, uh, you know, innate and adaptive immune system explanation. Hmm. That's fantastic. And that's such a great story. And I've had my own fantastic experience with the product and members of my family and gotten to share it. Um, so I can speak to that. Uh, my next question is around more um, how you're running a business in a way that is, and, you know, not to use the term regenerative without a definition, but how are you, you how are you running a business that is both profitable and that's also supporting farmers and your community and supporting science and supporting your own team? And what is that what does that look like? And and what have been some learnings in that process? Well, I would say it's still a work in progress. So I don't want to overstate uh, that we've got all these piece parts put in place that this is a model that you could just you know, flip a switch and turn it on. But I think we have uh had some pretty important learnings. I think first of all, and something that I know you, Paige, uh, believe in deeply, and that is you start with ultimately, what is the ultimate mission that's un uncompromisable? I don't know if there's such a word, I may have just made that word up, that you're not gonna compromise uh, the basic principle. So it is the guiding principle, it's the GPS point of guidance that uh, uh, when you come to that inevitable point where you have to make a uh, a complicated decision about something that that's an you're not going to compromise that as a principle, and I think when you do that, it is it, it it's your rudder uh, to use a, a boating analogy because I'm, I'm a big obviously in boating. Uh, it, it's your stabilizing factor. It, it gets your keel deep in the water uh, because in the course of any business, uh, as is in life in general, there are going to be many many unexpected. In fact, life is what happens. Uh, when we have our unexpected plans. So the, the ability to uh, maintain stability throughout the uh, un unplanned for changes is related to how deep you put that rudder in the water, that keel, that's gonna be your guiding principle. So for us, um, our concept has always been a concept that relates to the concept of uh, allowing the genius of nature, which is a concept called emergence to guide our behavior. Now, what is emergence? This is a big philosophical, probably meal to serve up, but I'll try to summarize it. Um, historically, the way we as humans have organized ourselves is through task planning that end up with a structure that is reasonably hierarchical, reasonably linear, reasonably compartmentalized, can be put up onto an org chart or a diagram, and it has a kind of a uh, power center, generally at the top, and then you go down low, and then it's got all these minions that somehow do something to support the top. Um, that actually is not how biology works. Uh, biology doesn't work off an org chart. And you you actually, uh, if you look at the ecosystems, you could use the rainforest as an example, or you could even use in our own body the development of, of our blood uh, vessels. Uh, blood vessels, if you look at your arm or your hand, and you look at the blood vessels, you notice they don't just run like straight lines. They have virtuosity. They 
they they don't actually they look like rivers coming down from the mountains and rivers don't run straight down they curve and they bend and and so why is that i mean that's not the most efficient path the most efficient path is a straight line well because these are emergent structures they emerge to serve a higher order of authority that's built into some warp and weft that we probably don't totally understand our genes remain fixed but how they translate themselves into form and function can vary based upon where those genes are spending their time making their messages obvious. So even identical twins with the same genes are not identical as they grow up uh, in terms of uh, their physiology. Huh. So this concept of emergent structure is a really important uh, conceptual core belief, I believe, of what we do in Big Bowl Health. We want to be consistent with nature's principles. and develop a model that can be oper operational at many levels. So it could be operational at the planet level, at the plant level, or at the human level, or at the human enterprise level. And to do that, you have to have, you have to be comfortable, to some extent comfortable with chaos because um, emergent systems don't always obviate themselves easily. You have to have some patience to allow them to develop. And there'll be some wobble and there'll be some interruption and they'll be like well why is it turning left it should be going straight well you don't know why it turned left but if you hang in there for a while you'll learn why left might have been better than going straight or going to the right so i, I think that that's how we try to develop the company is recognizing we're trying to make interconnections that are biologically compatible among all aspects of resilience resilience of planets resilience of plants resilience of animals resilience of we as animal species and then as communities that are stewards uh, of the planet. That's kind of our core operating philosophy. Wow, that's so beautiful. And it's so beautiful to see how it's evolved over, over the time that we've known each other. And I think just the beauty of, of hearing you and to play that back, really what I heard is listening to the emergence of what's happening, what's coming through, being present for it, embracing the complexity of it and then working with it, right? Transmuting it, you know, using our roles as humans and our natural intelligence to then transmute that into something greater than it was before. And sort of our role as human stewards taking place within a company and with an ecosystem is, is really beautiful to witness and hear about. Well, I think you said that much better than I did. And I want to compliment <laughs> you. That was elegantly uh, said. And I think that's exactly uh, the principle. Now, living with that principle in, in today's world, which tends to be more command and control, and maybe a little bit more, I'm gonna use this term advisedly, militaristic in the way that it's uh, seeing everything as competition and something has to win, and therefore that means something has to lose. Um, if that becomes kind of the rules of the road that have historic and we're trying to recreate the rules to be biologically compatible rules of emergence, then it's not always easy. Uh, so, but I think you have to have the, the tenacity and the patience uh, to stay with the system because what will come back, at least in my experience, is that you will have a moment, if you can remember where you started, in which, oh my word, look what it's telling me now. I would have never learned this if I already had this kind of principle of command and control of mine. I would have gone an entirely different direction. It would have been not nearly as successful. So to bring that full circle to sort of my first question, as as we wrap up here, you talked about the three things that you would look you would tell people to look for that are not currently existing in in our in our food system. 
in this emergent world where we're sort of working with what we have, how would you tell people to eat? How would you tell people to nourish themselves? Without maybe spending, I know we could probably spend an hour and a half on that, but. Well, I, I think I would I would follow the rules of the road that um, I, I believe every human being knows intuitively, but sometimes we have to be reminded of it. Uh, and so what I'm gonna say is very simplistic, but like I, uh, haikus, Sometimes the economy of language can be very powerful. Each word may have deep meaning. So I would say number one is uh, be thoughtful about your eating. Um, and the, the word thoughtful it has a lot of deep implications uh, because thoughtful means that when you're eating, you're recognizing that you're engaged in an activity that is very special, not only for the nourishment of your body, but the nourishment of other things for which the production of your food has been dependent upon. And therefore this thoughtfulness then has a moment of sacredness associated with it. That's more than just feeding off a hunger. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of interesting because some of the foods that we might eat when we were hungry may actually just make us more hungry because they were not actually satiating. Because the, the concept of satiation is not just solely related to the nutrients in the food. It's related to the, the psychophysiological response you have to that experience. Some people call that the precephalic phase of eating, that your mind is already telling you how your body should respond to the food based upon your relationship to it. Precephalic, pre-actually your body responding by digestion. So you might prepare your digestive enzymes in your gut to say, you know, I really shouldn't be eating this, but I'm going to anyway because it's convenient. Mm -hmm. And I know it's got more of bad stuff in it than I really am good. Well, what is your body then going to be prepared for? Is it really ready to receive the best of nutrition or is it already in a hostile relationship with what you're eating? So I think thoughtful is a very deep term that has a lot of philosophical implications as it relates to eating. That would be rule number one. Rule number two is uh, I and maybe rule is I hate to even use the word rule because it sounds very prescriptive, but guidance principle number two might be a better way of saying it would be to eat things that are as close to being in the form in which they were originally produced as possible. So uh, that would be eating foods that look like they were once alive. And um, and so I think that goes with plant foods as well as as animal foods. And particularly with plant foods where, you know, one could say they're a vegetarian by, uh, you know, having potato chips and uh, uh, you could have Coke as a beverage and you could uh, uh, have Cocoa Pops as your dessert. That would all be vegetarian, but it would not have really been the kinds of vegetable-based products that are close to earth and bring you all these variety of different uh, symphony of nutrients. So I think uh, the, the diversity concept and staying close to the earth are really important. Which then lastly, I've already suggested a kind of an interesting uh, principle that I owe my colleague, Dr. Deanna Minnick for. She uh, worked with me for a number of years and I think she has really become the expert in getting across the principle of eating the rainbow that, uh, you know, it's a kind of a guidance principle, like, and I'm not talking about synthetically colored foods, foods in their natural state that have colors from browns to yellows to oranges to blues to uh, greens. And, and those foods, each of those colors 
brings with it a different personality of an ingredient in that food that has evolutionarily has biological modulating activity in terms of your health and function. So if you did those three things that I just mentioned uh, before you eat, uh, I think you would end up most of the time making really intelligent decisions about how your body's going to be treated. Mm. Jeff, I'm always amazed at your ability to go from scientist to thoughtful leader and philosopher and everything in between. Um, so I'm really <laughs> grateful for that, for that response. My final question that I ask every guest is a big part of my mission here at Regen Circle. Regeneration has become a term that becomes increasingly popular and is used for a wide array of things from how we farm our food to how we live our lives. And so I like to ask every guest, what is your definition of regeneration? Well, my definition is that it's the opposite of degeneration. It's the antonym of degeneration. And what we learn and what we're often uh, exposed to is language that relates to we get worse as we go older. Life is, a, is kind of a collection of bad experiences that we collect debris around the road of life that burdens us and ultimately steals from us the vitality of living. That's a degenerative approach towards thinking. We are getting worse as we go forward. The opposite of that is regenerative. And in biology, for every degenerative process that there exists in cells to break things down, there is a regenerative process to build them back up. If you think of that every moment of your life somewhere, where for every degenerative moment where something's being broken down, it could be everything from your energy to your mood to your immunity, there is a process that exists in your body to rebuild new from old, no matter how old you are. And if you learn how to mobilize that power, you can live 100 years of extraordinary living. Thank you for that definition. That was absolutely spectacular. Um, super inspiring. Um, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show today and speaking with me. You have been a mentor, someone that I've looked up to, learned from, and consistently is forging ahead to create more health and wellness and vitality in this world and, and such a vital community. And so I can't thank you enough for coming on today. And I will be sure to link um, Big Bold Health and all of your amazing products in the show notes. Everyone has to try them. If you haven't, they're absolutely life-changing. So thank you, Jeff. Well, Paige, thank you. And I, I want to, with all of the authenticity, say that the only useful thing that I've said, if any, is to provide to people like you who are going to take the baton and move it forward in a world that is in need of creative solutions. Um, to find uh, how we're going to navigate through areas uh, that we never knew we were going to be experiencing that will require new solutions to be created that don't exist. And I'm banking on you and colleagues like you to be those people that are entrusted with that opportunity. Thank you, Jeff. We'll do our best Thanks. to carry the baton forward. I appreciate it. You will. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. 
If you liked what you heard, take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show. And if you want to learn more about how to get involved with The Circle, visit us at our website or on social media. We're always looking for like-minded people to connect with.